The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. While you're turning in your Bibles to James 3... say a few things. Um, We were overwhelmed yesterday, but I'm sure those of you that were here yesterday enjoyed that time together. Uh, Thank you so much. I thought if that group on stage had talked a little bit longer, I might even like myself. (laughs) Um, The one thing we didn't say was welcome back, Pastor Greg. thought about what you went through the last... um, Yeah. thought about what you went through the last 30. I still think I'd rather walk 30 days in Spain than spend 30 days on a ship in the middle of nowhere. Uh, just just saying. Um, I'm uh, grateful my brother Bill is here. Bill's uh, my oldest brother. I always remind people that don't let the fact that he has more hair than me fool you. He's my oldest brother. Um <clears throat> I remember Bill driving up to West Virginia in 1982 for my ordinate, to participate in my ordination service uh, a long, long time ago, which shows the lengths he'll go to for a free meal. But um, uh, all my brothers would do that, but um, Bill's consistent with that, and I'm grateful that he was able to come and be with us today, yesterday. I want to thank Steve Parks. Steve put um, a lot of time and sweat and effort, along with a lot of helpers, uh, into that event yesterday and, and a lot of things that we've been doing the last couple of weeks. And so thank you, Steve, for, uh, for all of that. And then I can't name names because I'll leave somebody out, but all the food and decorations, all the time and energy that went into yesterday. And if you weren't here yesterday, just forget about what I'm saying because you missed it. It's over. And uh, praise the Lord. Um, we uh, are so grateful for your love and support and prayers over the years. And we particularly appreciate your prayers uh, and the days uh, and years ahead. Thank you so much, Church of Christ. James 3, uh, beginning with uh, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil, every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And that's the word of God today. I've always been confused, uh, especially when I was younger, with the idea of wisdom. 
uh, it's just hard to define. Uh, it's hard to understand. Growing up, I just thought everybody was wiser than me, and I was pretty much right about that. Um, as a kid, I in in my head, I remember people when when older people would speak is something I needed to listen to because they were they were wise and old people were really really wise and now I'm the age of the people I thought were really really old and that wasn't so true either. Um, then God called me into the ministry and. It didn't take me long to realize that age doesn't equate with wisdom, true wisdom. Then I realized giftedness didn't necessarily relate to true wisdom either. You could be a great orator and not be wise. A great orator can fool you, though. Uh, nor brilliance. What about the guy that has his head full of knowledge? He might not be particularly wise Either they can fool you also. So it's a challenge for me, at least, to understand what wisdom is. And then we read um, uh, read what James says about wisdom here, and he doesn't necessarily def- define it for us or help. We start out this chapter talking about teachers. Um, then he talks about the tongue. And I always, uh, over the years, thought this chapter... Uh, flowed that way. He's talking about teachers, and and uh, he, at, at the end of that, he mentions the teachers' use of their tongues, and then all of a sudden, he digresses in some way and starts talking about how the entire church um, must consider the use of their tongues because it can be destructive, it can bless and curse. He says, and then it's almost as if he says, oh, I digress. Let me go back to teachers. And so then he says, who is wise and understanding among you? In a sense, that might be what's happening. But this is for all of us. Um, Charles Simeon, in his sermon on that one verse, verse 13, um, makes a wonderful transition here. And I'll... um, I want to share that with you. It's a little long of a quote, but uh, I think it might be helpful for you to see this chapter and see the transition he's making. And if you ever get a chance to read this sermon by Charles Simeon, it's just a, a wonderful sermon. And for that matter, since we're talking about history today already, if you, there, if you ever have any inkling that God might be calling you into the pastorate, there's one biography you need to read, and that's the biography a biography on Charles Simeon. Um, Listen to this. The government of the tongue is of all things the most difficult because every evil that is in the heart seeks for vent through that organ. A man who should be able to so to control it that no unadvised word should ever escape from his lips would be a perfect man. James said that. Yet if a man professed to be religious and have not much self-government as to impose an habitual restraint upon his tongue, he deceives his own soul, and his religion is vain. The gift of speech is to be improved for God by holy and heavenly communications. And the man who suffers it to be a vehicle of sin discovers himself to be a hypocrite before God. The inconsistency of such conduct is obvious. And then he quotes verse 11 of this chapter, a fountain cannot send forth both fresh water and bitter, nor can a tree bear both olives and figs. 
So neither can a renewed heart bear such different and discordant fruit. Whoever therefore professes godliness should take care that no such inconsistency be found in him. And then he quotes verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show out of his, out of his good life. Let him show out of his own works by good conduct and meekness of wisdom. What a great transition from the first part of that chapter to this part uh, we're on now. James has been talking about the conduct of our life. This is a practical epistle for us to deal with, and we'll be dealing with it for a couple more chapters. Talking about how the Christian life is to be lived out or demonstrated in our daily life. The very first chapter. How does your faith show up when you're going through a trial? Also in that first chapter, how, what about when you're tempted? How does, how does your faith reveal itself? Or later in chapter 1, at the end, how's the Word of God revealed in your daily life? And then he goes to chapter 2. How's your faith tested or revealed in, in how you treat people who have needs. And later in chapter 2, has your faith tested in your works? Or has it shown in your works? And then we saw in chapter 3 last week the test of your faith and the use of your tongue, which can be very, very destructive. All of these things reveal to your own personal life and to other people as well, whether you have a living faith or not. Does your behavior show that you're in a true relationship with God? And now he gives us a similar test. Do I, do I have godly wisdom that's revealed in my actions? Question for us to answer for ourselves today. Our behavior in all of those things demonstrates who's truly converted and who's not. It's a simple test, but it's a test that we need to examine ourselves with every single day. Like I said, James doesn't even define clearly what wisdom is. Well, he's Jewish. He's writing to Jewish Christians. They knew what, what, what wisdom uh, is. They, There's a part of the Hebrew Bible that is called wisdom literature. The Jews knew what what wisdom is. That's what what is all that wisdom literature? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Maybe I missed one. Scripture tells us so much. I want to take just a minute and show you some passages of Scripture that might help clarify before we move into this passage. Proverbs three thirteen through 18 Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness And all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. 
Proverbs 4, 7 through 9. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. That's what wisdom will do. Paul in Ephesians 5, 15 says, Look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 7 relates to this as well. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell. You remember I sang the song, the kid's song? <clears throat> I'm sure that was meaningful. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That's a wise man. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and floods came. The winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. That's what James is talking about. That's earthly wisdom as opposed to godly wisdom. And then turning your Bible is just too much to put on the screen to Matthew 25. I think this is important as well. First 13 verses. Parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. The wise took flask of oils with their lamps. The bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The wise and the unwise, clearly, believers are the wise. And so James says to us, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You claim to have wisdom, but do you really? Apparently, everybody claims to have wisdom. James is again warning his readers to examine themselves. And so he has that examination question. Who's wise and understanding among you? They're, they're similar words. Understanding is, is used there just to strengthen the word wise, I think. 
All right, and, and it could also mean that a wise person is, is one that is experienced and has knowledge and ability. But he's speaking to those who claim to be wise. I think we all do, not just teachers. Just look at social media today. Everybody is an expert on everything. Have you noticed that? When the arguments start, everybody weighs in. The, 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 the most unlearned pagan is a theologian on social media. I don't get it. A wise and understanding believer reveals by what he says and by what he does that he possesses wisdom. Simon Kistemacher says, Wisdom consists of having insight and expertise to draw conclusions that are correct. And then James tells us through the rest of this passage um, the many factors that come into that. So he first has the examination question, and then he talks. Then he says it's by demonstration. Say, so let a man provide actual proof that he possesses wisdom and understanding. He can do that in his daily behavior. He can do that in his words. He can do that in his deeds. That's what James is all about for this entire letter. And then there's that little piece of confirmation there at the end of the verse, in the meekness of wisdom. You've heard the phrase, actions speak louder than words. Well, that's true. And James is saying that we need to take a look at action to see if it matches up to our words. Charles Simeon goes on, and this is my last Simeon quote, by the way. You can rejoice in that. When we say that the Christian is a wise man and endued with knowledge or understanding, we seem to be guilty of great arrogance since it is a notorious fact that the great majority of religious persons, as Paul himself acknowledges, are of the lower orders of society, whose talents and attainments are extremely limited. Then Simeon quotes 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Then Simeon goes on and says, How then can we presume to designate the godly by such inappropriate and high-sounding names, wise and understanding? I answer that the wisdom of this world is, in God's estimation, folly. That his people alone deserve the titles that are here assigned to them. They are wise. He translates that intelligent. James is telling us in this passage there are two kinds of wisdom. They are completely opposite. They are as far from each other as the east is from the west. They are like oil and water. That's heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. But in Scripture, the same word is used to describe both. 
How can that be then? How can we understand? Well, it's always clear in the context. Because wisdom in its broadest definition would be applied knowledge. Just simply applied knowledge. The ability to use knowledge to achieve a particular end. And that's what James is saying here. There are two types of wisdom. How do you tell which kind of wisdom it is? Well, it's the same thing he's been saying throughout the entire letter. It's by production. It's what that wisdom produces in a body and a life. One produces bitterness. We learned that last week about the tongue. It divides, it destroys, it's, it's destructive. And the other is meek, and it produces fruit in the character of meekness, peacemaking, and purity, and on and on. We'll look at those in a minute. And then Paul, in Colossians 2, gives us the source. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, James is back in chapter 1, explained to us, What we do to get it. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So that wisdom that's hidden in Christ is produced in our lives as we ask for it and as we seek it. So James is telling us, if you must bridle your tongue as a sign of your Christianity, then the next step is for you to display godly wisdom in every area of your Christian life. No man can tame the tongue. Only God can. Then the next step is to produce godly wisdom in our lives. So if you're a wise Christian then show it. Show it in your Christ-likeness. Show it in the meekness of your heart. Because Christ is the only example of true meekness. And he explains that in detail in further verses. He's making it clear that, that the test of wisdom is not a doctrinal test. It's not like, okay, let's sit down, let's take a test, make sure you've got all the doctrines right, and then they'll declare, if you pass the test, we'll declare you as wise. No. He says the test of wisdom is in meekness. And then he challenges us to those two alternatives. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. It's not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Earthly wisdom, false, ungodly wisdom, flows from, what's he say? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. 
And James knows that he's speaking to the church. He knows there are those in the church whose spirit is described with bitter jealousy and selfishness. If they continue to harbor those sins in their lives, that their lives will be consumed. Earthly wisdom will be all they have. And it could be as simple as somebody gets a new car and you're jealous and bitterness creeps in. Earthly wisdom consumes your heart. You can't afford a new car like they can afford. Or somebody has the job that you'd like to have. Or somebody has the respect of others that you wish you had and bitterness creeps in. You're not able to rejoice with them or with what God is doing in their lives. Can you rejoice with others at the blessings that God showers on them? If it's the pattern of your life that you can't rejoice with others at what God is doing in their lives, and all you can think of are thoughts of slander and what you can do to bring them down, to see them fall. James says if that's the overflow of your heart, if that's the pattern of your life, you don't have true wisdom. We spoke about it last week. He's talking about those who've taken up the teaching role with selfish ambition. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Well, apparently there were those in the church that had that selfish ambition and because of the, the, the respect that teachers got, especially back in the first century. If he's relating this to teachers, that's what he's talking about. You could see they were in danger of being driven by the wrong kind of wisdom. Taking up that teaching role in the church. Doing so for all the wrong reasons. Erdman, uh, Charles Erdman says, Self-appointed teachers who are proud of boasted knowledge, who are fond of dispute who are bitter in their discussions, are more eager to defeat their opponents than to establish the truth. And some of them are using their tongues in destructive ways, harmful ways, without considering the damage of those that they were speaking against. James looked at them and he saw bitter jealousy, selfishness. Teachers of the Bible proclaiming the truth of God's Word. That should be their motive. But fueled by jealousy, fueled by selfish ambitions, they were what James says there at the end of verse 14, being false to the truth. Friends, there to be no rivalries in the church, and James is addressing this in that church. No rivalries in the church of Jesus Christ. We see it in the the church of the first century, and we see it in the church today. Living a life like that removes any possibility of godly wisdom active in your life. That's earthly earthly wisdom at its best. You do whatever it takes to achieve your goal. You do whatever it takes to move your own personal agenda forward, no matter who it hurts. 
And then he traces the ten, those tendencies back to the root. He essentially says, do you know why you're doing these things? Do you know why you're misusing the teaching office or why you're misusing the lives of other people in the church? Cutting up others with your words? It's because you're, you're being driven by this, this selfish, false wisdom. He says it's, then he describes it, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. Earthly, what's he mean by that? It's just base, it's common, it's, it's sinful. It's your best life now. It's, it's carpe diem. Seize the day. It's focus on now. It means that this false wisdom that he's speaking about has the only this world as its boundaries and doesn't go beyond the boundaries of this world. It begins and ends with this world. Doesn't consider eternity. Earthly. When they were living out church life for all the wrong reasons, using their tongues in all the wrong ways, he was thinking of people of earth instead of people of heaven. The word unspiritual refers to those fleshly appetites. He's very clear with this. His, his readers were living for all the wrong reasons, living out their lives for all the re- wrong reasons, using their tongues and their words for all of the wrong reasons, speaking in the wrong way to gratify their own desires as unspiritual as they could be, thinking of no one but themselves. And in re- if, he was re- if he's referring to teachers here, too, they could, they could be teaching all the right doctrine. All the right words could be coming from their mouths. A teaching with a head full of knowledge instead of a heart full of love, though. Our efforts, standing here, teaching in your Connect Group class, wherever you are, our efforts are powerless. Even if you can talk a good talk and teach the great lesson, powerless, unless it comes from a heart of godly wisdom. Then James adds the word demonic. It's a strong word. Wisdom from above or wisdom from below? Only two kinds. Only two choices. Maybe his strongest statement yet. That's why earthly wisdom can be so deceptive. We, we read about that in, in chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. He says it's, he uses that word demonic because Satan is so deceptive and Satan is so knowledgeable. Satan and his demons, they believe God is the creator. We said this a couple of weeks ago when we were in that passage. They believe God is sovereign. Satan believes God sent his son. Satan believes Jesus died on the cross. Satan believes Jesus rose from the dead. And if that's all you've got, that's a problem. 
He's a master deceiver. He believes those things. And this earthly wisdom is equally deceptive. A belief in Jesus Christ that doesn't transform your life from earthly wisdom to heavenly wisdom is no better than faith in the demonic world. Traces false wisdom all the way to the devil. Job in chapter 28, verse 28 said, And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. There's instruction there for us. And he's not through with this analysis of devilish wisdom. He said, verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. If James is not seeing that in the church, he's surely expecting it to come based on whatever's happening in that church he's writing to. There's disorder in the church. There's disorder in your life. There's disorder in your family. Every area of your life needs to be checked immediately if this earthly wisdom rules your life. It's a terrible thing. You'll be just as destructive as the tongue. Jeremiah in chapter 8, verse 9 says, The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? And those who possess this earthly wisdom that he's talking about may be skilled in a number of areas, as skilled as Solomon the wise man himself. And yet in the things of God, we only reveal foolishness. We may be theologically sound as far as knowledge is concerned. We may be able to articulate that to the masses. Yet in the things of God, we reveal only foolishness. Eternal matters don't consume our lives. I pray every day, prayer out of the valley of vision, that says, may eternal things consume my heart. But a good picture of what James is talking about here in earthly wisdom is in Isaiah 47.10. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. I've been that way before. I think we all have. Your wisdom and your knowledge perverts your life. But there's a true wisdom that can dominate our lives. It's heavenly wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Just a side note here. When he says from above, he really means from God. Jews... Uh, because of the esteem Jews gave God's name. 
they avoided it. And so instead of from God, he would say from above. It was sacred to them. And it still is to the point of legalism. I have some Jewish friends. I get emails from them. They mention God. They mention God because they're writing an email to a pastor. So, and so they mention God. You get a capital G. You get an underscore and you get D. They won't even spell God's name out. You may have Jewish friends that do that as well. That's what he means by from above or from heaven. Your translation may say wisdom from heaven. He means from God. And then there's this explosion of godliness we see in these, this verse, 17, first part of 18. It's pure, peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere, the harvest of righteousness. Let's look at those quickly. Pure is just holy. And why does he say that first? You notice he says, first, pure, then everything else. Everything flows out of purity. Everything flows out of the holiness in our lives. And in the Greek there, they're grouped together. You got pure is the only one that's by itself. You can't have true wisdom without purity or Holiness and all the others flow from this this first one. The next group is peaceable, gentle, open to reason. They're grouped together. If you looked at the Greek, you could see these words all spelled very similar, and the endings of the words are exactly the same. And he's not talking when he says peaceable or peace. He's not talking about a life without war or a life without conflict. It means united in Christ. With Christ. Experience the peace that passes all understanding. That's what he's talking about. When there is no peace, there's no godly wisdom. But we're good at cover-ups, aren't we? We're really good at cover-ups. There's no peace when you refuse to deal with the problems. Think about your marriage. It's a good example, right? And I know you're thinking, no, that's not a good example. You showed up today and you looked like the most peaceful family. But that might just be a cover-up until you deal with the problem. Or we could relate that to church life, or we could relate that to our own personal life, or life on the job. Where there's no peace, there's no wisdom from above. And gentle, that, that refers to... Peace as well, or relates to peace, gentleness in bringing about peace. Open to reason relates to peace. This is, this is, the, this is the one who, if you were not open to reason, there's not going to be any peace in your life. You stand firm on who you are and what you believe, no matter what, not willing to... Listen, stuck on your own position. But open to reason is one who's willing to hear the arguments. One who's open to changing their opinion. Boy, things will be a lot better at the office 
especially if you're the boss and you'd be willing to listen. James Moffat says the, it's the opposite of stiff and unbending. Barclay says true wisdom is not rigid, but is willing to listen and skilled in knowing when wisely to yield. Then the next group, full of mercy and good fruits. Just think Good Samaritan. Christ, the perfect example of mercy and good fruits, healing, caring for those with unusual needs, caring for those at the bottom rung of the ladder. James has already mentioned that in chapter, uh, chapter 2, 14. Look at that. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Full of mercy and good fruits. Then the fourth group. Impartial and sincere. There's not even in the Greek. There's not even an article. The and is not in the Greek. It just says impartial, sincere. And that takes us back to verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Or verse 14. Excuse me. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, selfish ambition, that would be one who's partial. He's saying godly wisdom is impartial. I'm not asking for what can benefit me. I want what benefits the kingdom of God and others, no matter how it affects me. He also deals with that back in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For, and then he just compares the rich man to the poor man. Oh, you'd give the best seat and house to the rich man. You'd ignore, you'd ignore the poor man. And sincere. He ends it with sincere. This is all the wisdom that comes down from God. The growing in the life of the true believer who seeks sanctification in its fullest sense. Just all that fruit coming from their lives. Godly wisdom, heavenly wisdom. Without it, you get deception, you get discord, and you get bitterness. And then he closes. The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That can be confusing because, you know, well, fruit or the harvest of righteousness, you don't sow that, you sow seed. Not the harvest. But we use those terms even in today's life. You might say, I planted watermelons today. Well, no, you didn't plant. If you have watermelons to plant, just eat them. You don't have to plant watermelons. You planted seed. Or I planted cucumbers. No, you didn't plant cucumbers. You planted seed. And that's what James says. A harvest of righteousness is sown Because that harvest is in us. God has given us the fruit of the Spirit. This is this list of fruit he's mentioned already. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. 
And all of it goes together. And He's planted that fruit in us so that we can sow that fruit in the lives of each other in the church and even beyond. Fruit, our harvest of righteousness, purity, gentleness, peace, mercy, sincerity. And so the bottom line is, who's in charge of your life? Is it that demonic earthliness that's in charge? Or the godliness that he mentions? Certainly, if we made a, if we made a, we just went through the text. You understand the origin and the nature and the fruits of each one. You're going to vote for heavenly wisdom, I hope, and pray. But you need to ask, what kind of wisdom do I have? Is my life marked by earthly wisdom? Or is my life marked by heavenly wisdom? So James is saying, who is wise and understanding? Do I come first? Does my agenda come first? Do I place myself above others? If so, earthly wisdom rules my life. Or... So all this fruit at work in me, fruit that only God can give by His Spirit in Christ, is it working in me in such a way that godly wisdom rules my life? Which one describes you? Well, I have a suggestion that your prayer today might be that God would give you the wisdom to know the difference and to make the correction. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll close with a hymn. We encourage you during that time, if there's any response you need, to make if you need someone to pray with you. Pastor Greg and others will be in the back. They'll receive you if you have questions about the Word of God proclaimed today. Let's talk about Jesus being a part of your life and providing fruit for you to live by. You may That may seem all strange to you, and if it is, I encourage you while we sing in a moment just to make your way back there. They'll answer your questions and pray with you. Are there any other needs that you have? You can go while we sing. Father, we thank you for your word, the truth of your word, for the gracious promises of your word, for what you're doing in all of our lives. Continue to mold and shape us in the people of God you've called us to be. Continue to do your work not just in here, but out there as we serve you. And I pray, O oh Lord, that the one today who does not know Christ as Lord and Savior 
that this might be their day. For today is the day of salvation. We give it to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.